Our meditation in preparation for worship this morning comes from Psalm 54. It's verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. Will you pray with me? Father, we are here to worship you. We ask that you would save, vindicate, and hear our prayers this morning. Condescend to us and give us your ear as we worship you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As I've mentioned many times before, the lectionary readings for this week are on the front of your bulletin. And this week we find ourselves in the book of James with a selection from the end of chapter 3. The lectionary reading actually goes into chapter 4 some too. But at the end of chapter 3, James asks us a question. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. That is a fascinating term, the meekness of wisdom. Paul tells us that knowledge does not produce meekness, but rather the opposite. It puffs up and makes us prideful, but not wisdom. Wisdom is meek, but how is it meek? Well, James, in fact, tells us what the meekness of wisdom looks like. He says, the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. This is really helpful. First, it comes from outside of us. Wisdom comes from above. It is a gift from our Father of lights. This kind of wisdom is pure. That means it seeks the truth. And yet, it's, in seeking the truth, it also seeks peace and does so gently. James also tells us that the wisdom of meekness is open to reason. If you are characterized by the wisdom of meekness, you know you can't always be right. So you are open to reason and merciful to others when they reason with you. Because of these things, a person's fruit is obvious and good because people recognize both impartiality and sincerity. Sincerity. This is all the meekness of wisdom. James then tells us what the end result of the meekness of wisdom will be. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It will be a harvest, James tells us. Not just any harvest, but a harvest of righteousness. However, James also gives us a warning. He says, But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. This warning that James gives us reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So, if you are able, will you please kneel with me? Scripture says in Psalm 54, verses 4 through 7, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. People of God, hear the good news. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. The word of the Lord, Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. 
And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Thus the very word of God. Please be seated. Good morning, Christ Covenant Church, and on this glorious Lord's Day morning, um, we've had some blustery weather for sure, and we were certainly blessed by that, blessed by the rain, but here we are with a sunny day, and um, I do want to welcome, uh, I, see, I see many uh, folks in here that I, I don't know, and I'm, we truly and sincerely welcome you to Christ Covenant Church. We, uh, we're excited when we have visitors, and we're excited when we, we have our people together. It means a lot to us. It means everything to us. Um, so we're, we're really glad you're here. We've been, uh, when I've had occasion to be up here at the pulpit, um, we've been looking at the book of Genesis and at the beginning of Genesis, and we started by kind of uh, uh, setting our our camp for it, if you will, before we embark on this on this journey up what I've been calling the mountain of Genesis. And as um, the soldiers of the king have been gathering and, and as we have embarked on this journey in Genesis, um, we looked at so many things about God that are, that are true and that are real. And then as I uh, was here with you all this morning as we, as we prayed, as a variety of people have come up front and prayed, and as, and as we as a congregation and as a body have sung the songs that were presented to us in our bulletin, it's, I just find it absolutely remarkable how the Holy Spirit knits and, and, and puts together all these things, that it's all interrelated, that there's, there's, nothing, there's no outlier, that uh, God has fabri- fabricated this and he has injected it into us, and we talk about... Uh, things that recur and are and we say over and over again the truth about God and his sovereignty and all that and as we look at creation that's what we that's what we do and as we as we consider God and consider his progressive revelation in his word we we stand on that foundation we stand on the foundation of Genesis and the book of beginnings the creation that God has wrought and what we enjoy and what we are blessed by I've had, um, because I'm not up here every week, there's been some periods of time between, between uh, me being up here, so I've been uh, hunkered down in Genesis a bit, and it really causes a whole lot of reflection, and it causes a lot of thought, and for me it's a blessing certainly as my uh, understanding and the realization of how important creation is to us uh, as, a, as a race of people, but even more so as, as the Church of Christ. And I've had a lot of time to reflect on it and think about it, just the wonder and, and the, the magnitude and the majesty of God's creation. And as I was thinking about it, I, I thought about a few staggering things that, um, uh, that I looked at, but I also thought of a couple quotes that I, had, I have encountered in my lifetime, one of them from Neil Armstrong, as he was on the moon in 1969, and he said, it suddenly struck me that the tiny pea, pretty and blue, was the earth. I put up my thumb and shut one eye, and my thumb blotted out the planet earth. I did not feel like a giant, 
I felt very, very small. So as we consider, uh, we consider the heavens and how they declare the glory of God, I, I was thinking about the solar system and all that, and as we see and as we go through uh, Genesis 1 here uh, this morning, we're going to see the, the, the primary light and the lesser light created, and the stars are considered almost like an afterthought. But I was, I was looking at this, and over the last 20 years or so, the Hubble Space Telescope has approximated that there are 2 trillion galaxies in the universe. That's galaxies, not stars now. And when we consider our own Milky Way, our own Milky Way has between 200 and 400 billion stars in it. So we have a, if there's a, a trillion galaxies, and each galaxy, let's just say, has 300 billion stars in it, the numbers become, again, staggering. And with that said, the winner of the largest star that happens to be known to man is a star called U.Y. Scuti. It's a red supergiant. It's in our Milky Way galaxy. And you could fit 489 trillion Earths in this star. That's the volume of it. We can fit 1 million Earths in our own sun. That's 93 million miles away, which we're enjoying this morning. And I thought, you know... (laughs) We live in a country that throws around millions and trillions of do- billions of dollars like it's nothing. So I, I thought, what's a trillion look like? So I went online, of course, because I don't know the information. But if we take one trillion one-dollar bills and stack them up, we're going to have a pretty high stack. In fact, the stack would be 67,866 miles high. That's a trillion one-dollar bills stacked. That's over a quarter of the way to the moon. Pretty amazing, isn't it? When we think about creation, when we think about the magnitude and the majesty of our, of our God, this creator God, and we think about God in a whole lot of ways, but for me personally, having, having been involved in this in preparing to come and talk to you guys, it's really, really settled on me that our God is the creator and it's pretty amazing. So as we look at the heavens, we can, and, I, and part of my quote-unquote research for, for doing this, honestly, was to turn all the lights on on the outside of my house and walk out my backyard, because I live down by Linlock, you know, and then if the, if the hamsters aren't powering the generator down there, it's dark anyway. I go out and I just look, and I just look at the sky. Conversely now, if we want to think about staggering numbers, our bodies contain about one, about 10 trillion cells, actually. 10 trillion cells in the human body. And that's, that's a low-ball estimate, actually. Each human cell has six feet of DNA in it. You take the DNA out of a human cell, out of all the micro, mitochondria and, all, and, all, and the nucleus of the cell, if you take the DNA and unhelix it and stretch it out and put it in the end, 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 you're going to have six feet. That means that in, er- in the human body, you have 10 billion miles of DNA in your body. So not only did our creator God, this majestic, awesome God, not only did he create the heavens and the earth, but he, he, he had everything honed down into the details that are just, just almost too, too staggering and too, too big to even consider. Your DNA would stretch 
to the sun and back 61 times. I just find that absolutely amazing. And we see that God reveals his majesty and his glory in six days of creation with eight creative acts, each introduced by the rubric, and God said. How often do we deliberate upon creation? I've already told you that I've been deliberating on it a whole lot lately. And I know that folks in this church are reading, doing the, doing the Bible reading, and I, uh, Kay and I have been reading aloud to each other, and uh, we're becoming rather fluent in some of the Hebrew names that we're encountering in Genesis, in the genealogies. But, but there are folks in here, I know you guys are reading, you've been, been in Genesis and the book of John and a few of the, few of the Psalms. It's an amazing thing, so I know you're familiar with this. But how often do we think about creation and by extension the creator? Specifically and, and deeply, how, one, how much do we wonder about it? We all agree, if we are believers, we all believe and we all know that God could created, have created the universe in an instant. He could have created the universe in the moment it entered his mind. The, the universe could have been here as we see it. And it may be even, even grander and, and, more, and even more beyond that. We know that. But he chose to accomplish his, his creation in six days. He chose to do it, I think, for our benefit. He chose to do it in a manner in which we, our finite minds would understand. And we can identify, we know what a day looks like. And we talked about the different views of the days and the different views of the ages we, last time I was up here. We, got to, we want to remember that the Holy Spirit used Moses to relay this account to Israel and to us. And we know what kind of environment the, 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 the fledgling newfound nation of Israel was in when, when all this was, when this narrative was put together, when the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write this. He has a fundamental message for us in Genesis and in chapter 1 and, and beyond as we progress through to the book of Revelation. And we... And we want to think about what that message is. One of the things that I, I know, and I think everybody in here can identify with, is g how God looked at his work, at his, at his creation, and, and the pronouncements that he made. I know um, Kay and I love to play chess, and, and uh, I'm, I'm quite a hacker out in the um, uh, wood shop, but I've made a couple chess boards, and there's something about playing chess on my own chess board. It looks kind of raggedy. Nobody would give me any money for it. But, but, but my point is, is, is we, when we make a meal that we haven't gone out to buy, a, a, a meal that we've gathered the ingredients for and put together, and we've, we've brought it to our family and we've offered it to them or had people over, how special is that? That it's not something wrapped in a, in a bunch of paper that we went and paid money for that somebody else did, and all of that, we find that we find that very very satisfying. How satisfied must God have been as He looked at what He wrought and what He created by the power of His and sovereignty of His Word? In, in verses three through five of Genesis one, and God said, "Let there be light," and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. We see light separated. We see light created. 
and we see light separated from the darkness. And we've already, we've already considered uh, what often light and dark symbolize for us as believers and how, how light and darkness are used in the Word of God. And the thing that really struck out at me was each morning, if we're up early enough, we encounter this light. Or if we sleep in, like some are wont to do, when you open your eyes, your retina receives light. And uh, I'm not going to sing it for you, but I, I remember an old song from the 70s by a guy named Cat Stevens, and, it's, uh, and, the, and the lyric is, Morning has broken like the first morning. And it's, and it's a nice, it's a beautiful song, and, and he talks about God's recreation or recreation of the first day. Lyrically, it's a beautiful song. I don't know, we might have had a song at our wedding. I don't know. I can't remember. Who knows? Obviously, my wife doesn't because she's looking at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> but these ceaseless mornings are evidence of God's loving kindness and his faithfulness to us. I think of Genesis 8, verse 22. It says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Of course, Psalm 30, verse 5 says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but what? Joy comes with the morning, right? And then Lamentations that we're all familiar with, Lamentations 3, verses 22 and portion of 23 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Now, in in this portion of Genesis 1, the source of the light is not specifically stated. It says, let there be light, and there was light. But we're not going to see until day four that the sun and the moon and the stars were, were identified as such. So the light source, I would suspect, is God himself. I would, I would say that the light is a divine light, that God allowed this, his, his light to shine on this, on this rock as he's, as he's organizing it and building it. We see God's divine light with, when Israel was in the desert by the cloud, right? We see God's divine light in the tabernacle. Without a candle burning, without PUD doing anything, we see the light of God. The Apostle Paul developed the theological significance, or at least he, he, he massaged it a lot in uh, the creative light in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, when he alluded to Genesis 1, verse 3. It says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And after God, annou- after God creates light, he announces his evaluation, and he says what? He says it was good. It was healthy. It was useful. It was fitting. God saw the work that he had done, and it was good. And we're going we're gonna to hear that over and over again. And the fact that God did it makes it good. We don't even need to see, we don't even need to see quote-unquote, see a benefit of it, because we know that if God did it, he is good. We know that no matter what God allows in our life, you know, Luke was talking about trial and, and some tribulation and, and, and joy and all these things in our life and no matter what it is we rejoice in that because god is good 
and God allows it, and he has a purpose and a reason that we don't always understand. Right? I mean, Jesus said, in this world you'll have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. And of course, Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 4 again about this light momentary affliction that prepares us for an eternal way to glory that we can't even comprehend or begin to understand, really. God is judge as well as landlord, and he evaluates the consequences of his creative word. Yet darkness remains, so God divided the light from the darkness. And when Moses penned this, God's people would learn that God, God makes distinctions, that he does separate. He would separate the holy from the profane. He would separate the holy place from the most holy place. And he would separate his people from the corruption and the pernicious evil that was in the world. He had a plan for Israel, and he, and he would separate them and segregate them. There's a reason God, God instructed and commanded them to, to take out whole bodies of people. Because he knew what, what would happen to them if they intermingled and they started to intermarry and have children and all those things. Well, that doesn't seem fair, Les. Well, God commanded it. I know when I was a young man, there was once or twice, and only once or twice, that my dad told me to do something, and I asked him, why did I need to do it? And he said, what? What did he say? Because I said so. You know what? <laughs> God said so. I mean, there was a place in Egypt, Goshen, for his people there. And it was a good place. And it was protected from all the plagues that happened in Exodus. All of that. After the light and the darkness were separated, God named them day and night. In the, act of, in the ancient Near East, the act of naming uh, was an act of sovereign dominion. In Genesis, naming attests to the sovereignty of the Creator. And we see later in, in this chapter that God entrusted His dominion over the earth to Adam by letting him name all the living creatures. Now, I just want to briefly, I want to mention that um, there's, there's, there's debate about the days and the length of days in the book of Genesis, in particular in chapter 1, about, about whether they're 24-hour days or not. And there are brothers and sisters in Christ who believe one way about it, and there's those of us who believe it's a literal 24-hour day. When the day, when the, when the word day, or yom, and we're familiar with the Hebrew word yom, because we all have heard yom kippur for sure, when we hear that word yom in conjunction with a number, day one, second day, third day, it invariably always refers to a 24-hour day. But there are, there are times when it refers that the word day does refer to something that extends beyond 24 hours. The day of the Lord in Isaiah 61, the day of vengeance. Uh, we understand that, that, mean, that we're talking about a period here that's, of something that's going on. Um, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, bases the teaching of the Sabbath day on six days of creation and the seventh day of rest. And from the fourth day on in creation in, in Genesis 1 here, we're going to see days, months, years, 
signs, seasons, suggesting a normal 24-hour day. In other words, we're going to begin to uh, quantitate time. We're going to be able to identify it and designate it and, and make it distinctive. And of course, my good friend John Calvin attributed the six literal days to God's accommodation to human understanding. In verses 6 through 8 of Genesis 1, it says, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Now, as we read that passage, it's very straightforward, I think. God, again, as he's separating, he's making distinctions. And he's naming. He continues to demonstrate uh, his power and his sovereignty, the power of his word. But at the same time, as Moses is penning this, and as, it's, it's being, as this inspired word of God is being delivered to the nation of Israel, they, remember, they are immersed and surrounded by a bunch of pagan, pagan nations. Pagan nations that... That, are, that rely on mythological polytheism, okay? So we're going to see that Moses is not going to even make a reference to the sun or the moon by name because he knows that the Egyptians had the small g idol Ra, the sun god, the moon god, the star, these gods of the stars and all of that. The biblical account that we're looking at here sits in extremely stark contrast to what, what we see out in the world. Every other religion beyond the Judeo-Christian uh, Bible here. The waters were separated as the darkness was from the light. And when God calls the expanse heaven. He's not referring to his dwelling place as we understand it maybe in Isaiah 50, 57 or whatever, but rather we're, we're, he's talking about heaven as, as the place where the constellations and the stars are and where the birds fly. That's heaven in, this, in the context of this particular portion of, of uh, Genesis. The creation of the expanse dividing the waters is not called good in this particular portion of Scripture. It's not called good because God's not done dealing with the waters yet. He's not done configuring and, and creating and doing all that. In Genesis 1, verses 9 through 13, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Two further regions here organized by God, the dry land forming the earth and the water forming the seas. These are the last objects actually specifically named by God in this account in Genesis. And while vegetation may seem a little out of place because God is forming this third rock from the sun to become inhabitable, we have vegetation sprouting, and God, God begins to talk about kinds and, and after their own kind and bearing seed and all of that. 
We're going to see that in verses 29 and 30 that the vegetation, that this anticipates the vegetation providing sustenance for us, the food that we were going to eat. No steaks, no chops, vegetation. Genesis 1 in verses 14 through 19 says, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the great light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. Oh, and by the way, in the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Again, you know, as we, if you think back to the staggering size of this uh, star that we talked about, this red giant, the stars are almost an afterthought here. And it's not because they're insignificant. It's not because, because God made them. But anything compared to God is infinitesimally small. And, I, and that just really... affected me as I thought about that. Here's this star that's, that we can fit a trillion earths into, and Moses is almost saying, oh, by the way, God made some stars too. This amazing God, this creator God that we have. And here we find in this portion of Scripture that the emphasis is on the creation of lights that are going to govern time as well as provide light on the earth. And again, I've already made reference to it. He referred to them as the greater light and the lesser light. And perhaps in an effort to just avoid using a, a proper name of a, of a, a polytheistic and mythological little G-God deity type thing. Chapter 1 of Genesis deliberately undermines these pagan ideas regarding nature's being controlled by different false deities. In Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 through 5, I want to share with you. It says, If there is found among you, within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told to you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out, out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. This is a pretty stern warning for our times as well, for any who would seek the stars in charting their lives. Now, as a young man, I, we, we used to get the paper every day. And I'll tell you, uh, when you get to the page that has the funnies on it and the crossword puzzles and all that, there was a little, little portion on there that had your horoscope. And I looked at it. Now, I was not, I was not a, a servant. I had, I had not been saved by my God yet, so I would look at it. And, you know, I knew it was nonsense, but part of me found it somewhat interesting, just like the, the, the majority of the world would. That these, these stars are in alignment. I'm aware of couples 
who have gotten together and fallen in love, and then when they find out, well, he's a Virgo and she's a Capricorn, well, that's, that will not mesh, that will not meld, that they've gone their separate ways. How insane is that? How crazy is that? But that's the world. I remember as a young man as well, and, you know, I'm a lot older than most of you guys, a woman named Jean Dixon. She was the preeminent astrologer in America. She predicted that Kennedy would make it out of office alive. It wasn't hard to figure out, but you know, people put a lot, of, a lot of stock in what she had to say. People ordered their lives based upon her predictions. We remember back to Nostradamus and all, all these others. God says, uh-uh, no. A stern warning is given for that. Kay will tell you, we go, when we go to an um, uh, oriental restaurant, I won't even... I won't even look at the fortune cookie thing anymore, man. I just don't. I, uh, it, it's kind of weird, maybe, and quirky, but you know what? I don't want to put any, I'm not even going to indulge it in, in a lark. And anyway, on the Genesis 1, verses 20 through 23, And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God, what? He blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas and let birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Of course, we're looking at the filling of the waters and the skies and one of the distinctive features of this portion of Scripture in Genesis is that this is the first recorded blessing in the Bible, right here, in this portion of Scripture, verses 20 through, 20 through 23. God blessed the creatures by enabling them to procreate. He blessed them by being able to, to, to multiply. And again, this indicates and, and continues to establish and, and affirm God's sovereignty over everything as he blesses you to be fruitful and multiply. And then at the end of chapter 1, in verses 24 through 31, it says, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the, every living thing that moves on the earth, and God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. So the sixth day, we see the culmination of creation here. We, we begin to really understand, I think, what 
the purpose of what God was doing here in, in chapter 1 of, of Genesis, this creation account that we have. After God brings order and fullness to the creation, he creates human life to rule and to enjoy this now inhabitable planet, or habitable, excuse me. God, he makes these boundaries and sets limits for the self-perpetuating creation. Boundaries that the law will employ in teaching the principles of holiness and cleanness. The word kind is used quite a bit in, in this, this portion of Genesis 1. And we've encountered people who subscribe to the theory of evolution. And I recall uh, Ray Comfort going around and asking biological evolutionists with uh, PhDs and all of that, give me one example of a change in kind. And... We, Kay and I have seen the documentary. I remember we kind of turned to each other almost at the same time. I said, I almost feel sorry for these people. They're stammering and they're hemming and hawing so bad. I, they, they just want to crawl under a rock or something. Because he says, just give me one example. Show me that a duck turned into a cat or something. Just show me one change in kind here. And, it, and it's impossible. And we know it's impossible. We're not surprised that it's impossible. Because we know what God did. There's no accident here. It's not, it's not some, uh, uh, it's no accident that God made reference to kind and made distinctions and all of that. And he created man, male and female. We have a dear friend whose son is going to, going to high school in St. Helens, Oregon. And on their little, their little information sheet at the day one of school, they were issued this thing. And as they were filling out the, the information sheet, there was a section there that said, what is your preferred pronoun? And I, don't, I, don't, I just say that because we, we see the reality and the truth of what God has done. But we see, we see how perverted and corrupted and distorted things have become. And I'll talk a little bit about that right at the end, but we see God, God in, his, in his perfect, powerful sovereignty creating, th- creating this, this universe, making this planet habitable for us, and then putting us in it, and then blessing us and loving us and giving the ability to procreate, to fill it, and have dominion over it. This sixth day reveals the culmination and the goal. And after God creates human life now to enjoy and to, and to rule the now habitable earth, and he continually makes boundaries and sets these boundaries. But the, but the crowning point of creation is human life. And I mentioned I, I, had, I had thought of two quotes. One was Neil Armstrong's, but the other one was, is from Augustine. And um, I've kept this forever, and I've had it, not forever, but you know what I mean. Augustine said, Men go abroad to wonder at the heights of mountains, at the huge waves of the sea, at the long courses of the rivers, at the vast compass of the ocean, at the circular motions of the stars, 
and they pass by themselves without wondering. How much do we marvel at a and an orca whale. How much do we marvel when we come around the corner and see the monolithic Mount Rainier and all its, all its beauty and magnificence? Yet we walk by one another without nary a look sometimes. The culmination of creation. I'm looking at it right now. I'm looking at the culmination of creation. And God didn't make us. He didn't create us. Remember, we talked about this a couple times ago, not because he was lonely or that he needed us. That wasn't the, that wasn't the case. But listen, humans are far more than animals. And I'm not going to get into all the stuff we see out there with some of the people out there who seem to be more distraught over uh, the abuse of an animal and some of the other things that we see perpetrated toward people who bear the image of God. The text shows that human life was set apart in relation to God by the divine plan, let us make man, the divine pattern in our image, by the divine purpose, let him have dominion. The narrative here marks the prominence of this creative act in, in a few ways. Shows an ascending order of significance with human life at the pinnacle. Again, I'm kind of hammering that a little bit. Of the creative acts in Genesis 1, this is the only act that is, uh, contains a deliberation or deliberative aspect by God. Let us make, in verse 26, this replaces all these personal, word, impersonal words, rather, spoken it says, where it says, let there be and let the earth. God says, let us make. Now, there's, there's an intentionality there about, about God deliberating and now forming and, and creating this, this, the apex, the pinnacle of creation here. And when we, when we hear that, let us make men, some, of, some people have explained it as a plurality of majesty. We'll hear monarchs, for instance, if you read history, they'll make reference to, well, let us do this edict, or let us consider that, or whatever, and they refer to themselves in the plural. That's not the case here. And some have suggested that God's even, he's saying, let us make man in our, in our image because he's addressing his heavenly court. Well, man is not created in the image of angels. And my reading of Genesis, and I guarantee you, your reading of Genesis will indicate that God has had no help, no assistance by any creature in this creation. It's strictly God and God alone who has done it. Only Him. The interpretation proposed by church fathers and per perpetuated by the Reformers was this was an intra- Trinitary dialogue. In other words, God is speaking to himself. And I just have a note I put down here in my, my notes here. It says, this is not an explicit reference to the triunity of the Godhead, but it certainly allows for that doctrine's development through the process of progressive revelation. So right off the bat, we know, we're, we're beginning to understand, let us make man in his image. Of course, we have the advantage, too. Imagine how foreign this might have sounded to the, to the Israelites as they read this. 
Well, that sounds rather peculiar. Let us make man. Of course, we, being, we Christians understand that, and we embrace it, and we rejoice in it. But we also know that there are aberrant, um, aberrant understandings of these things, too, when we start looking at some of the heresies out there and the modalism and all that other stuff. <clears throat> when we look at the image of God, in God's creative, crowning creative act, the formation of human life, his wording changes from that impersonal let there be to the deliberate and intimate let us make man in our image and after our own likeness. Our God, you'll be happy to hear as you look at me, is not a physical resemblance. The image is not a physical one. God's likeness denotes our capacity to rule over creation and be in relationship with God as well as other humans. So this is not a physical this is not a physical thing. Although there is God didn't make us as physical beings. There's no there's no doubt about that. But we humans also exercise in our life, in our existence, reason and intelligence, speech, moral consciousness, creativity, rationality, and choice. Since time began, God has desired to bless us and enjoy fellowship with us, so he made us in his image. And humanity is unique among all God's creation, having both a material body and a spirit and soul. The image of God refers to the immaterial part of humanity, not the physical part. It is a likeness mentally, morally, and socially. Mentally, humanity was created as a rational, volitional agent. In other words, we have the ability to reason, we have the ability to choose. And think about this. Anytime someone invents a machine, anytime someone writes a book, anytime someone enjoys music, anytime one of our children calculate an arithmetic sum, anytime, anytime William names a new pet in their household, he or she is proclaiming the fact that we are made in God's image. Morally, humanity was created in righteousness and perfect innocence, a reflection of God's holiness. Our conscience or moral compass is a vestige of that original state. So whenever someone writes a law, recoils from evil, praises good behavior or feels guilty, he or she is confirming the fact that we are made in God's image. And of course, socially, humanity was created for fellowship. Makes us unique amongst the created beings, I guess. This reflects God's triune nature and his love. Every time someone marries, every time someone makes a friend or hugs a child or goes to church, he or she is demonstrating the fact that we are made in the likeness of God. Now we can't look at one another and each other and, and see the perfect image of God that our father Adam possessed, Adam and Eve possessed before the fall. We can't do that. Because right now on this earth it doesn't exist. That's my contention. I'm happy to talk, have a conversation about it if you disagree with me. But here's the thing. We can look to Jesus Christ who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who is the one who came and saved us. We can look to him 
our Lord, who is the preeminent perfect image of God. And certainly there's a, a myriad of scripture that all points to that, from the Old Testament to the New, through the New Testament. Hebrews 1 through 3, this is a whole sermon here. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And in 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul says, In their case, the little g-god of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus Christ shows us what he meant, what God meant when he said, let us make man in our image. Christ is, Christ is, that, is that man. He is the one that showed us that. And in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, this doesn't imply at all that God was weary from his work, this creation that he was doing. In fact, the effortless ease with which God did it by just speaking things into existence would indicate the exact opposite, of course. The motif of God resting hints at the purpose of his creation. In the ancient Near East, in the ancient Near East, divine rest is associated with the building of temples. So again, we have Moses in this time writing this, and God has built the consummate temple. He has built the consummate place for him to dwell with, his, with creatures created in his image, to be in fellowship with him. And of course, we've read, we've read through Genesis numerous times, and we know, we know what's coming up, and we know what happens. We're all well aware of that. But there was this moment, there was this moment when God walked in the garden with Adam. It's hard to imagine. And of course, we, we look to the seventh day as a Sabbath day, a Sabbath day of rest. And in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And God talks about, for six days you will work, but on the seventh day you will rest. And God sanctified that seventh day to make it holy. And that's why, that's why, when the state threatens to not allow us to do this, we need to feel it. Because it should be abnormal for us. God set apart this day for us. He set apart the Sabbath for his people to gather, to be in fellowship, to feed one another, to, to join our voices, to, for our hearts to beat in synchrony with one another. And that's, we should be very strong about that. And as I close, I, want, I was thinking of quite a few verses in the New Testament. I want to close with 2 Corinthians 5, of course, in verses 17 through 19, because they, have to, they happen to mention the word creation. It says, therefore, Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We are new creatures. New. New creation. And certainly the, the truth is, is that we did not make ourselves. We didn't make, our, we didn't make any of this. We had nothing to do with our, with our being here. Less than Shirley Doyle conceived me. I had nothing to do with it. And I would submit to you that the truth is that if you are in Christ, you didn't have anything to do with that either. Because it's no accident that Jesus told Nicodemus that you must be born again. There's no, there's no accident of, that, of those words being used to demonstrate God's love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That we are, new cre- we are a new creation. And I remember... I remember when God saved me, I wanted to be baptized, and at the church I was at, we did full immersion baptism. And I'm 50 years old, I'm an old guy. And, you know, the pastor would let someone have the mic and make some comments before they were immersed for the baptism. And... (laughs) Those of you who know me know that I'm a man of few words. No. So I think Kay had a little trepidation maybe. When, uh, oh, you're really going to give him the mic, are you? But you know, I entered, the, I entered the font of water there, and the pastor was standing in there with me, and Kay and I were baptized the same day. It was a very special day for us. And I remember I looked out at all these people who had gathered to witness this, and... Um, pastor said, Les, uh, here you go. I'll say something. And it was just an overwhelming thing. All I said was goodbye. That's all I said, one word, goodbye. Because I knew that that old man was dead. I knew that God had taken my heart of stone and he had made me alive. He had quickened my heart to him and you've heard me say it up here before how did you know you were saved Les? because christ is the most important thing in my life he is the one he is the one and as kay and i were talking this past week about some things going on in our life to get together she said how do you feel and i've shared this with many of you already but you know we're just we face the reality that uh, that God allows in our life and what we have. But the, but the overwhelming thing that made us very emotional was how much Christ loves us. No matter what. Our God, this creator God who, who speaks things into existence, who is sovereign over every molecule, that there is no rogue molecule in this universe, who controls everything by the power of his word, 
who holds the sun in the sky and this, this, this star that's unimaginably huge, that he can hold, to say he holds it in, the, in his pinky is not even, not even strong enough. That's our God. That's the God that we worship. That's the God who's faithful to us. It's the God who blesses us. It's the God who gives us strength when we can't even draw a breath. We, are the, we, we run and we don't grow weary because of Christ. These things in our life that, that control us and held us in bondage, God takes, delivers us from them. The God, the creator of the universe, intercedes for us. Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. But I pray for your faith. He didn't say he wasn't going to get sifted. He said, I pray for your faith. That's our God. That's the one who loves us. That's the God who, who gives the strength to Debbie Swecker to go up and with a smile on her face and, re, and joy in her heart, even though she's just lost her partner for, of decades. A wonderful, amazing man. It's just such a fine tribute Friday, but we see, we see Debbie trusting God with joy in her heart. This world is a tough place. It's difficult. But there is a reason that when you are saved, when, you are sent, when God justifies you and says you are not guilty before him because you put your trust and faith in Christ, the finished work of Jesus on the cross, there is a reason we are not raptured into heaven in that moment. There's a reason, and we need, to, we need to think about that. And we need to understand that. And I'm going to tell you what. It all begins in Genesis. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious day. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your benevolence and your condescension to us, Lord that you make things understandable for us, your people, that the message of the cross is not foolishness, that it is an amazing thing, and Lord, we, we embrace it and we, and we love the empty tomb. We love the, that Christ, our Lord and God, is seated at the right hand of the Father. And Lord, we do not hunger and thirst for your love, because you are so free with it. You are so graceful with your love, Lord. But we do hunger and thirst for righteousness. We do hunger and thirst for your word. We do hunger and thirst for your truth. And Lord, you are bountiful in giving it to us. We thank you with all of our heart. And we say this prayer in a name that is above all names, the name of your glorious and precious Son, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In Psalm 8, we read, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the sun, and the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. As we come to the highlight of our service, the Lord's Supper, it's important to remember where we've come from. It was God who called us into his presence this morning. It was God who forgave us from our sins when we confessed them to him. And it's God who has changed us and consecrated us into someone that is more like Jesus. 
And so as we come to the table, remember the, these words in Psalm 8, that God has made us a little lower than the angels, and he's crowned us with glory and honor, and he's crowned us with the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. So for those of you who belong to Jesus, for those of you who bear his name in baptism, come and welcome to Jesus. So the charge is this. As Les has preached, the universe is so big to us, it's basically infinite. And the smaller you go in the human body and in the created world, the more you realize that that's infinite as well. So the infinite God made a world that to us, his finite creatures, seems infinite because we are infinite. We will outlast the sun. We will outlast all of this creation. And so go forth into this created world knowing that you bear his image and that everything you do, every work that you do in the name of Christ will last forever. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.